The following is a hoop ball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. I'm fairly certain it's Friday. The calendar doesn't exist. But I'm pretty sure that my voice gets two days of rest after this, at least from doing a podcast, not from yelling about all sorts of other stuff. So under the assumption, under the guise that it is indeed Friday, happy Friday to you all. Welcome to Fantasy NBA Today. I am Dan Vespris, your host. You know, been doing this for a little bit yet. Quarantine continues. Lockdown continues. We are still in it. Although this week did bring us a small dose of optimism, among other things. And uh, yesterday brought us actually a lot of news on the baseball front, though that doesn't have a direct impact on our basketball stuff. It is certainly of some measure of relevance. And so on today's program, we're going to spend a few minutes talking about baseball's proposal on a return to play before segueing into post-mortem day 23, if I'm getting that right. And uh, today we'll be looking at the Cleveland Cavaliers, which I know as you guys hear it, you're like, Dan, you saved this, this for a weekend show? That's a terrible idea. But there's actually a lot of value buried in that team, and I can't wait to uncover it. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, you know where. It's at Dan Bespris, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S, or just Google search Dan from Hoopball. But I'm pretty sure all of you guys that are still listening to this podcast, even during the days of no sports, you guys are probably following me if you have social media. I'm not on the other ones. I'm too old. I'm full-on Danny Glover style for things like Instagram. I, I don't get it. Many people do. My wife is on Instagram pictures of our kids and whatnot i'm not i might have set up an account way back i don't know it's on my phone but i think it was linked to the bakersfield blaze baseball team from uh way back when can't believe by the way that uh baseball minor league baseball in bakersfield has gone now for four years i also can't believe that minor league baseball this year may not happen but whatever let's talk about major league baseball first which i know for basketball fans you're like do i really have to sit through this segment and the answer is no you don't this is a podcast you can do whatever the hell you want but i find it relevant and so we're going to talk about it because you've got to believe that whatever other leagues are thinking about doing they're all talking to one another there's no question and so what we learned yesterday from baseball's commissioner rob manfred and then we'll tie this into basketball and adam silver is Baseball secured a facility in Utah that can act as basically a COVID test processing center. They've also been able to secure, they believe, enough tests independently of what's going on in the rest of the country so that it doesn't upset the supply chain for places that need them. Need them, I read the word need in bold italics, more than baseball does, since baseball at this point, and sports in general, are sort of an optional luxury that we'd be provided while in this pandemic. I don't know how all of that stuff comes to pass. It's not my business, and I'm not going to pass judgment on it either way. If, if that's a thing that's doable, then that's great. The Twitter world doesn't have any middle ground. I, I Believe me, I watch all the fights going back and forth, half of the people yelling that sports are not important, the other half yelling we need them because 
we need something to help our brains. And then the first half yells back, well, you guys are taking tests from people that need them. And the second half says, well, what if there are enough? Here's the thing. There is a middle ground. There are hundreds, if not thousands of locations across the country that are working on trying to increase testing right now. And it's been a slow process, which is why a lot of this is taking so long. It has not been handled well. But if indeed these leagues are able to fund their own operation, they should have the right to do so. You know, that is to say, I think there are folks that... and. No one I don't know is necessarily wrong on this. This is one of those situations where it feels like both sides have points that are valid. Meaning, okay, well, if a league can get 10, 15, 20,000 tests for themselves, maybe those are ones that should be gifted to a place that needs them more. But at the same time, we're not talking about starting this tomorrow. We're talking about probably starting this in July which is still a solid seven weeks away from us right now. We don't know what's going to be happening. So leagues are securing tests. Baseball managed to do that. Presumably, if baseball's done it, I have to believe that football and basketball are working on similar plans. Where I think baseball may have gone a little bit wrong, at least right now, and maybe this gets tweaked before a final proposal gets put together, is that according to what I was reading yesterday, and again, maybe there are some details that we don't have yet, It sounds like players who are asymptomatic will be tested three times a week. Players, coaches, umpires, basically the people that are going to be near to one another. And, you know, unlike a front office employee who can sit in a stadium suite and they can actually sit 10 feet away from somebody else, the players, the coaches, the umpires, they don't have that luxury to be far enough apart. Three times a week, if that's really the target, is probably not enough. We also learned that the turnaround on these tests that are getting sent to and processed at that facility baseball was able to acquire is one day, 24-hour turnaround. So, hypothetically, a player, asymptomatic, and we know asymptomatic people do carry the virus. There's, I think they said 20% of people with it don't show any symptoms at all. Someone like that could get tested, And then the results come back one day later. And if there were two days, say, before that test came, after their most recent negative test, there's a possibility that that player could have been exposed to three days' worth of people. Whether that's people on his own team, the opposing team, umpires, his own coaching staff. When there is that exposure, then they go into sort of contact tracing mode, which is, okay, who did this person see those people, I believe, with the baseball report, get then the rapid test every day while being monitored closely. And the person who originally tested positive, obviously now, goes into quarantine for until they test negative. So then they start using the rapid tests, the ones where they can get results basically on site. Okay, that's fine. I've also heard that leagues, soccer leagues and so forth in Europe are testing every day, which to me feels like kind of what you need to do because if you have one day of exposures that's a whole lot easier to contact trace than three days potentially exponentially so like say for instance this player uh exposed to the people in his own locker room and maybe uh they switched cities while this was going on i don't know that baseball i don't think baseball's trying to do the bubble mode maybe they are but i I didn't I didn't see that as the end goal here. 
But what if they travel? What if they see their family? What if they play a different team the following day? It's the beginning of one series and the end of another. You're talking about potentially up to 75 or 100 people that now need to be monitored really closely if they show any symptoms, and they're going to get tested, I would assume, with the rapid test before even setting foot in a facility every single day for the next probably two weeks in a row. That's a lot of tests. And what if that happens repeatedly? What if that's happening a couple of times at every moment? Whereas if they're doing this, if they're testing people every day, then you get the results really fast. And to me, it almost feels like you need the rapid test with more accuracy too. But I mean, at least if they're doing this one-day turnaround thing, then they can pretty quickly figure out what needs to be done. Like a player shows up, they take their test, they go about their work day. Before everybody else gets back to the ballpark the next day, we know that player tested positive and everyone that they came into contact with can be contacted so that they don't then go expose other people. I'm assuming, based on what we know about the NBA and how they carry themselves, number one being, of course, this was the first league to pretty much pull the plug on things. They started the dominoes in this whole pandemic shutdown uh, on the sports front and seemingly kind of spread to other walks of life. The NBA being the first to shut down, it wouldn't surprise me if the NBA was also one of the last ones coming back. They have been, from a can-we-do-this standpoint very conservative they have been extremely cautious for the safety of their players and I understand it because in the NBA you're not talking about a baseball that a couple people touch and can sanitize their hands you're talking about sweaty humans banging off of each other all game long it is close proximity so I'm thinking that if basketball is working on setting up Something similar, meaning getting a testing facility. We've also heard that they really are gravitating towards the, the sort of pod method, meaning a bubble or a campus or whatever they want to call it. I'm, I'm betting the NBA is going to be testing people every day. I would believe that they get tested as they walk into the arena. Team, staff, whatever. And there's also an element to the NBA that's a little bit easier. Baseball teams are 25 players and usually anywhere from three to seven coaches. So you're talking about 30-some-odd people in the dugout on any given day. And with the NBA, you've got, what, 12, 15? And with the NBA, if you really wanted to, I'm thinking because there are no fans in the arena, you're probably going to be able to put your players and coaches far enough apart where there's actual social distancing happening during a ball game. There are going to be huddles and stuff like that, but I'm betting assistant coaches are going to be wearing masks. Head coach might not if he's calling out plays or whatever, and the players, obviously, they won't be either. But you're going to see masks. You're going to see the coaches far apart. You're going to see player seats a little bit farther apart, and it might not be six feet, but even a little bit, if there's that one positive test, even a little bit of space between people might be enough to stop it from becoming a team-wide thing, which, you know, if that happens, you're screwed. But here's the thing. We've seen this now. Rudy Gobert was the first athlete, or big-name athlete at least, and Donovan Mitchell was the only teammate that we heard of at least that got it. They're able to social distance, and they weren't even trying at that point. So with a little bit of effort 
with constant testing, and I think it needs to be more than what baseball's doing in the NBA, with the with the caveat, of course, that with the NBA, they're not playing every single day, so it is a little bit easier to stop spread. You send a test out, you get the result back, that team is probably off the next day. Especially if you're going straight into the playoffs. There's plenty of time in between games to administer tests, but... We'll cross that bridge when we get there. I thought the baseball stuff was pretty interesting, and I wanted to at least spend a couple minutes talking about it on today's show. Let's segue now into the fantasy element of today's episode, and that's the Cleveland Cavaliers, which even as I say it out loud makes me want to retch a little bit. But at the same time, this was a team that, down the stretch, had four players inside the top 75, and the lowest ranked of those four was Andre Drummond. They also... It's worth mentioning, over those last uh, 25 games or so, didn't have anyone inside the top 45. <laughs> so there's kind of it's kind of a double-edged sword. But let's start with the biggest names on the Cavaliers, as opposed to who was doing what that last month, month and a half, and we'll work our way through the names from there. Andre Drummond, Kevin Love. Those are the two biggest names on the Cavaliers. You can flip a coin as to where we start, but over the last couple of seasons, Drummond has been, by large factor, the more valuable fantasy asset. With Cleveland, that wasn't really the case. He was just inside the top 75, basically, since he moved over to the Cavaliers on about 18 and change points, 14 rebounds, still got his steals and blocks, still couldn't hit his free throws, didn't shoot the ball that well, and just had an inordinately high number of turnovers but that was an issue for him all season long. I think that with Drummond, part of what we saw was a settling in process. Part of what we saw was, frankly, a little bit of a tanking team that wasn't really pushing him all that hard. He had some injuries, so his minutes were artificially depressed in a few of those games. He really did start to look better his last, eh, say, three games in Cleveland before the NBA shut it down. And in particular, his last two, because those came after missing about a week and a half with his most recent injury. Those last three games, 27 points, 28 points, 21 points, rebounding, he had 37 of them over those three games, six steals and five blocks over those three games. That's the type of stuff that we're more accustomed to with Drummond, even though during his time in Cleveland, he, he was only at you know, 17 and a half points, 11 rebounds, 55% shooting. That was fine. One and a half steals, one and a half blocks. That's all well and good. Uh, free throw shooting was down, but we, we know with him, he, he'll probably settle back into a particular number. What we also know is that, and he had seemingly made this decision even before the pandemic hit, he's likely to take his player option seeing the writing on the wall that big men just aren't making money like they used to. There just isn't the same market. So the Drummond we saw in Cleveland at the very end of the year, where he was sitting somewhere in that top 75 range, is arguably not going to be the Drummond you see when next season rolls around. I, I say this with uh, some trepidation, but again, th you know, those last three games, he was a top 25 guy, and maybe that's more what we're looking at here, is top 25 as opposed to his time in Detroit, where he was, I mean, he had stretches of top five play. That was pretty remarkable stuff. But if he's really out there trying to score 20 points and grab 13, 14 rebounds and get his two steals and one and a half blocks, that's a lot like the Drummond that we saw in Detroit, 
with probably a hit in rebounding because of some of the other names that we're going to mention on this team. I really don't know where Andre's going to get drafted next year because there's a possibility people look at the entire season overall and see, okay, number 27, that's not too bad. Perhaps people see that number 27 and feel like they overpaid for him this season, which indeed would be the case because of how he petered out post-trade deadline. Or perhaps people see how awful he was in Cleveland and think he falls even farther. I really don't know what the general populace is going to be thinking about Andre Drummond next year. So it makes it hard for me to know whether or not this is a guy we think we can get on value. But if he starts to fall towards the third round, I would absolutely draft him at that point. There's still more than enough, the expression we love to use around here at Hoopball is meat on the bone, to where he can get his 14 rebounds. And maybe it's not 16 or 17 this year. But he can get his teens in scoring, his teens in rebounding, his steals, his blocks. The field goal percent should be high. And frankly, it might be higher in Cleveland if this is a team that's now working to get him some looks besides what was going on in Detroit where he was just like, okay, well, I'm going to go do whatever the hell I want all day long. And that's where I run into a little bit of an issue with Drummond. If I had to guess here on May 15th where Andre gets drafted next year, I do believe he ends up as a small value play. I think there's an assessment of him based on what he did with the Cavaliers, which, frankly, wasn't good. I mean, there's no sugarcoating it. He, his, his scoring was down. His rebounding was way down from 16 to 11. Steals were down. Blocks were down. Field goal attempts were down. Uh, he started taking three-pointers for some wild, harebrained reason. But the rebounding is really what the, the big drop-off. That's what had separated him. Roll it in with the steals and the blocks. And I mean, he wasn't that far off. He wasn't, it wasn't great, the drop-off in steals and blocks, but it wasn't, it wasn't horrible. And then again, if you look at his most recent few games with Cleveland post-injury, the blocks did seem like they were coming back. So I do think that's something that's going to be fine. I think the steals are going to be fine. I think the rebounding comes back up a little bit. And so even if you mark in some of those slight drop-offs, mostly for me in the rebounding department, that I think is where the, the most substantial hit comes from at whatever it is, from 16 to call it 13, then you're talking about a guy that falls from top 12 to maybe more like top 25, and at, I think probably relatively close to where he gets drafted going into next season. Kevin Love is the next name on our list. And once again, we're just going through names in order of, I believe, where people expected them to finish. And for Love, he finished at number 56 on the season. Played in 56 ball games, which is probably about the range that we were targeting out of their total to this point. Not great, not horrible, basically enough to make a middle-late pick of Love and kind of the later parts of the middle rounds a worthwhile one. Team was, by the way, 19-46 and 46 on the year. They had the uh, second-worst record in the NBA at the time of stoppages. Kevin, 18 points, 10 rebounds, 2.5 three-pointers, 3 assists, half a steal, .3 blocks, 45% from the field. Uh, not a high enough volume, but a very good free-throw percent. That's always been an area where he's kind of made his hay. But in looking at his numbers for the season, I think you'd have to call this a bit of a letdown. Looking at the way this team was made up to start the year, I would have assumed 
that Kevin Love would be taking more than 13 shots a game. That is a an extremely low number for a guy that no longer was playing alongside any high-volume guys. I mean, we saw when he was in Minnesota, Kevin was taking 18, 19, 17 shots a game as the man. When he moved to Cleveland, that dropped to about 12 and a half. He had one season where he took 14 and a half. That was 2016, 2017. But mostly in Cleveland, he had been second or even third fiddle to LeBron James and Kyrie Irving. Last year, he wasn't healthy. So I was willing to write off the 13 shots a game at 39% shooting as just a guy that wasn't right. This year, 13 shots a game for a healthy Kevin Love. And yes, the field goal percent came back. So one I think could argue pretty emphatically, and and I would tend to agree with the assessment, that last year's field goal percent was a direct result of whatever injury he was going through, the toe thing or you know whatever they wanted to call it. But this year, I don't fully know how to write a story on the 13 shots per game. That was a number that I thought would easily get back to 14, maybe even 15, and he just seemed... Well, I guess this answer might might actually give us the answer to the other question, too. Disinterested. I think we need to get Kevin Love on a slightly better team. I think he's hit a point in his career and life where when he's on a garbage team, he's just not that interested in going full bore every minute on the floor. It's not that he's that old or anything. He'll be 32 in September. He's on the back end of his prime, but he's not an antiquated fellow. Uh, he just... You could see his his heart wasn't in it every single time out. And he made the team better when he was on the floor. He just, you know, one of the few guys on offense that creates a measure of gravity for that team. But it just, there's, there isn't enough gusto. He doesn't have the gusto to get where we needed him to be in fantasy. So, you know, I thought he'd be a pretty good value this year in fantasy. He ended up being pretty darn close, actually, to his his, his draft day ADP finishing in the that 50 some odd range he was generally drafted uh i think is what the hell was kevin loves adp this season i'll have to triple check on this to make sure we got it right yeah 52 his adp was 52 and he finished 56 in nine category leagues and and just a hair lower than that by totals oh no actually almost exactly on that on that spot on number so 56 ball games for him i think as we look towards the future there's reason for a tiny bit of optimism on the Kevin Love front. I, I, it feels to me like the Cavaliers, while they will remain bad next year, they've made moves to try to do, even if it's only a little bit, but a little bit is not nothing, more winning. Trading for Andre Drummond, even though he's sort of not the future of the NBA, he's better than what they had going. They had too many centers, but Andre Drummond is a better iteration of Tristan Thompson when he's focused in. They don't play that similar dissimilar roles or anything, but you get my drift. Uh, I think moving Larry Nance down and playing him a bit at the three and just getting him on the floor more was helpful for this team. Colin Sexton, who is another name we're going to be talking about here shortly, made big strides this year. And then they're relatively high on guys like Darius Garland and Kevin Porter, and I think there's going to be a tiny bit of an addition by subtraction thing for this team. So this coming season, they're not winning any championships. But even if the Cavaliers next year put out the mantra of, hey, let's let's try to squeeze our way into the back end of the playoffs. Let's at least make a run at it. I don't think they're going to make it. 
But you could see the Cavaliers adding five or six wins next season, getting up to, you know, I don't know where they would have finished this year. They were 19-46, and 46, so winning about 30% of their games. They were probably going to finish somewhere in that 23-24 win neighborhood. Maybe they add enough wins to get themselves to 30 wins on the year. I'm not saying that's going to be the case, but I'm saying that's a possibility, and it's probably what they're going to be shooting for, which won't be that far off from the last playoff spot in the Eastern Conference. So I think they're going to try to win a little bit next season, and maybe that gets Kevin Love a bit more involved. Conversely, Drummond is going to take a bunch of shots, more than the guys that were there before him, meaning the pieces that they jettisoned off to bring him in. Colin Sexton is taking a ton of shots. Darius Garland is ramping up his usage. So I don't know that Kevin Love actually adds any field goal attempts. Basically, my argument here is that you might see a relatively similar Kevin Love year over year, and you'll probably see him drafted later next season. I would guess in the 60s. And at that point, I'd probably consider taking a shot at him, at least in Roto, where if he does miss 9, 10, 11, 12, 15, 17 games... It's not the end of the world. You know, I'd still rather, in a daily Games Cap Roto format, I'd still rather have a top 65 guy playing 65 games than a top 100 guy playing 80. And I know that by totals, that top 100 guy actually is the better value play there or the better season-long asset. But with a Games Cap, I'm still confident I can fill in those other 15 to 17 games with someone performing well enough so the hybrid of Kevin Love playing 65 and player X playing 17 is better than, I don't know, an example from this year would be P.J. Tucker. Because that extra slot that you're not comparing just Kevin Love at 65 games to P.J. Tucker at 82. You're comparing Kevin Love plus some other random dude playing 17 games. I think he'll be a tiny draft day value. Tiny. Tiny. There's still some name recognition, which kind of, it it pokes a few holes in it. Next player I want to talk about is Colin Sexton. I think he's actually, even more than Larry Nance, kind of a well-known commodity on this team. And for Sexton, he got off to a pretty brutal start this year. It looked like it was going the same way as last year. And then all of a sudden, he turned it around. Sexton was a top 60 play the last month and a half, the last 25 games this year. On 24% or 24 points per game, three boards, four assists, two three-pointers, a steal, 50% from the field, and 86.5% at the free throw line. Now, there are things that we need to discuss in those numbers. One of them being 50% shooting. He shot 47% for the season and 50% over that last month and a half. And better than that, by the way, if you go to the very end of the season. He made one-and-a-half three-pointers a a game at 38%. He shot 43% last year, and his his field goal percent went up four clicks while taking two extra shots per game. So there was a lot of growth with Sexton. There are questions now about, is this a guy that can actually shoot 47 to 50% from the field for the year again? I'm inclined to say yes. 13 of his 17 shots a game came from two-point land, and a lot of that was rim attack stuff. A lot of rim attacking from Colin Sexton. I do legitimately believe he has started to figure something out. 
I don't legitimately believe he's going to be a top 60 asset for the entire season, which is what he was doing while he was red hot with other pieces showing up and taking some stuff away from him. But I do believe he can pretty easily be a top 80 or top 90 guy for an entire season, even if there's a little bit of drop-off. He's also showing himself to be a capable free-throw shooter and can be a positive impact guy there. The turnovers are, frankly, too high for someone only averaging four assists a game, so maybe we see some improvement in that number as well. I don't know where he gets drafted in fantasy, and that's a problem with this Cleveland team because sometimes with these teams that no one's paying attention to, it's hard to know what the general public feels on a particular set of players. Like, we know Andre Drummond has a big name, but he was also horrible in Cleveland. So how does that balance out? Kevin Love has a big name, but he underperformed his ADP by a, a quarter of a round this year. He was not impressive. What does that do to his value? Colin Sexton scores a lot, so he had been overvalued prior to starting to figure things out. And But here's the thing. I don't know if most people made the adjustments. He was overvalued when he was sucking, Is he now accurately valued once he started playing well? Is he undervalued? No, I don't think that's the case. But is he still overvalued? I don't know. I don't think that people made the the same adjustment to their numbers when he started playing better. It's possible that folks are just like, oh, well, he's now doing what I thought he was going to do for the entire season or all of last year or whatever the hell, whatever narrative people are going to have in their heads. I get the strong suspicion that folks that did not have Colin Sexton on their roster this year probably didn't really notice that he started to play better. And a lot of it was just efficiency. Getting the field goal percent up. Fixed almost everything. Because he doesn't do much besides score. But if you can score with good percentages, well, that changes everything. While also hitting some three-pointers, by the way. So he finished the season at 110, but he was a top 60 play over the last 25 games. What is Colin Sexton? Where is he drafted? I think he probably gets grabbed in the 75 range next year. And I would consider taking a shot at him then if you really need scoring and you want to keep your percentages intact while picking up a guard. I think there will be other guys available that have more upside than he does at pick 75. And remember, as we talked about, getting real aggressive at that point. But I think he might also be a relatively safe play, someone that's just that's going to be touching the basketball a fair amount. And finally, I want to end our survey of the Cavaliers with Larry Nance Jr., whose fates have been inextricably linked to Tristan Thompson because we all assumed Tristan Thompson was going to get traded at the deadline, and he didn't. It remains one of life's great mysteries why Tristan was still in Cleveland down the stretch. It remains one of life's great mysteries why they insisted on playing him intermittently down the pseudo-stretch, which I think we have to call it that because there was no real stretch run this year. But whatever the case, despite Tristan Thompson being around, despite Andre Drummond largely being around, although he did miss a few games during his Cleveland tenure, despite Kevin Love only sitting out back-to-backs. Despite all of these things, by the way, Tristan Thompson's contract is done, so there's almost no chance he ends up back in Cleveland. Despite all of these things, 
after the trade deadline, Larry Nance was basically still a top 50 play. Larry Nance Jr. was the best fantasy asset on the Cavaliers for the final 25 games this year. Better than Kevin Love. Better than Colin Sexton. Better than Andre Drummond. On 13 points, 8 rebounds, 3 assists, a 3-pointer, 1.3 steals, 0.3 blocks, 57% shooting from the field. Not a good free throw number, but he also didn't take any, and just 1.3 turnovers. In nine category leagues, Larry Nance Jr. was somehow the best Cleveland Cavalier in fantasy over the team's final 20 games. Remarkable, isn't it? Remarkable. There were games in there where things seemed like they were getting a tiny bit dicey. And if you go to, like, the last five games, now you're getting into a real limited sample size, well, then Colin Sexton was actually better. He averaged 30 points a game over those last five games of the year. He was going bananas. 58% shooting, 20 shots a game. Larry Nance was actually second on the team at number 33 over the last five games. 16 points, 8 rebounds, 4.5 assists, and 2 steals a night. He played 37 minutes a game, which he could never do for an entire season without his body breaking down. But here's the thing. Yes, not everyone was healthy for all of those games. So you have to take some of it with a grain of salt. But if you look at just the last game, the very last game the Cavaliers played before the NBA season shut down, they were in Chicago against the hapless Chicago Bulls on that last Tuesday. So yes, one could make a very good argument that the Bulls defensively are so terrible that everything on Cleveland is going to look good, but they only put up 103 points in the game, so it wasn't like it was a fantasy roll fest. Kevin Love played 37 minutes, Andre Drummond played 34, Larry Nance played 32. How on earth did they pull that off? And, by the way, Jetty Osman, who I think is going to be playing less next year as a little bit of an addition by subtraction thing, he played 30. Minutes in this game. Tristan Thompson did not play, so it's a pretty accurate assessment of the biggest parts of the front court. Darius Garland was out, so Matthew Dellavedova logged 34 minutes. And uh, Kevin Porter was out, which I think also allowed Colin Sexton, Dellavedova, Alfonso McKinney to log a few extra minutes. Maybe you could argue it helped Larry Nance a tiny bit as well, or maybe you argue it helped Jetty Osmond. Whatever you want to argue... Larry Nance came off the bench, played 32 minutes, went 6-for-6 from the field for 16 points, 4 boards, 6 assists, 2 steals, and 1 block. This is someone who we've seen it a thousand times, only needs 24 minutes to be a top 100 fantasy asset. If he gets into the 30 range, that's when he starts pushing top 50. I think Larry Nance Jr. could be one of the steals in fantasy next year. I'm hopeful of it. I'm hopeful of it because I love his fantasy game. And the only thing that worries me is, did anyone notice how great he still was even after the trade deadline seemed like it was going to knock him off his pedestal? And by the way, we've done these postmortems, and I think I've been pretty fair in talking about where we've biffed some stuff and where I've overvalued and undervalued guys and misfired. My call at the trade deadline to tell everybody don't drop Larry Nance Jr., I still think was one of the smartest things we did. How great was he down the stretch? I guarantee some of you guys listening to this podcast picked him up off waivers after the trade deadline because someone dropped him too soon. 
We love guys here on Fantasy NBA Today that have the track record. What do we call it? We call it portfolio. They have the portfolio. They've done it before. Larry Nance Jr. has a delicious fantasy stat set. He always has. He's just needed playing time, and Cleveland loves him. He signed for another two years, or three, two or three. Either way, it's more than one, and it's not over yet. There are enough minutes for Larry Nance, especially when you look at some of the other factors at play here. Ante Zizic is the only other true big man on the roster besides Love and Drummond. Kevin Love ain't playing 82 games. Andre Drummond ain't playing 80. Well, nobody might be if they start the season in December, but you get my meaning. They ain't playing 100% of their team's games. Drummond might get closer than Love, but let's forget that for a minute. Let's assume for argument's sake that Kevin Love and Andre Drummond each play every single game next year. Neither one of them misses a single game. Kevin Love, what do we think he's going to play? He played 32 minutes a game this year when he was on the floor. Should we say that again, or do we drop it by one? Let's drop it by a minute. Let's say he plays 31 minutes a game. That's 17 backup power forward minutes. You know who's getting all of those? Larry Nance Jr. What's Andre Drummond playing? He played 33 minutes a game for the entire season. Uh, He had injury stuff that was going on after he hit Cleveland, so that may cloud the numbers a little bit. But let's, again, for argument's sake, I mean, he's generally played about 33 to 34 minutes a game over the last three seasons. So let's assume here, and we're going we're gonna to take some of the most conservative estimates possible to, to really wire this thing through. Let's say Andre Drummond plays 34 minutes. Who gets all those backup center minutes? I mean, some of them might go to Kevin Love. Some of them might go to Kevin Love when Larry Nance is playing power forward. So let's say that Larry Nance gets another... What do we want to say? Eight? Half of those-ish? Seven or eight minutes at center? I mean, I think it'll be more than that. But already, you're at 25 minutes for Larry Nance. If he gets any additional minutes at center, or any additional minutes at power forward. By the way, that this assessment that we're doing right now undercuts how many minutes of power forward he would get. Because if Kevin Love is logging some of his 31 minutes at center... That means that there are additional power forward minutes available. What is Ante Zizic going to play next year? Five, six minutes a game? Yeah, come on. So Larry Nance is already at about 27, I would say, just from power forward and center alone. And we saw down the stretch last season, this season, whatever you want to call it at this point, that the Cavs were more than willing to play Larry Nance at small forward junior. Sorry, I guess we should be calling him Larry Nance Jr. because there are two of them. Uh... They're willing to play him at small forward for four or five-minute bursts. Let's say that happens once a game. Let's say he gets three or four minutes of power forward. That's 30 minutes. That's where it comes from. That's how he was playing 32 minutes a game down the stretch. Larry Nance has a clear path to 30 minutes a game next year, and he's a top 60 guy almost at the very worst when he's playing that much. And I think he gets drafted way later than that. I think Larry Nance goes at 80 to 100. And I will take him at 80 to 100 every time. In fact, I don't know. Okay, so remember we talked about some of our lessons of the year. And by the way, that's the last Cav we're going to talk about. Uh, no, I mean, we can mention Darius Garland. He was starting to play a little bit better down the stretch, but there's some gaping holes in his fantasy game. So I, I don't think I'm drafting him 
outside of a few particular formats. You know, there were there was enough, and same deal with Kevin Porter. I, I don't think that I'm drafting him outside of a few formats either. Both those guys showed flashes. Eh, maybe I'd take Kevin Porter at the very end of a draft. I'd venture into that mayhem if he's collecting every backup power or uh, shooting guard and point guard minute. He was running some sort of point forward, point whatever, giant point guard type of stuff. Uh, with Garland, I don't know. I mean, we need a lot of assists, and there were stretches, little baby stretches, where he was sort of getting there, but not really. I mean, there was almost no stretch of play this year where he was inside the top 150. Kevin Porter did have a few brief forays into the you know, top 125 range. But both of those guys have some stuff they need to work on, and maybe they fix it. But they're not guys that my, in my main target run. Remember when we talked about, in our lessons of the year, where to get aggressive with things. I don't think that I'd put Larry Nance on my first ballot of guys that, let's say all of the dudes that I'm targeting in the top 60 disappear, and it gets to me, and it's pick 60. I probably wouldn't go Larry Nance at 60, even though I really like him. I think he'll fall a little bit farther. I also think that there are probably some guys you can get at 60 in your kind of your next tier that have a little bit more upside built in. This year, uh, I mean, we've, do I need to go over them again? Yeah, I'll go over them again. This year, the guys that that I'm talking about in that range that were going around 60 that had the big upside were guys like Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Danilo Gallinari, Kelly Oubre, Gordon Hayward. I mean, I'd even argue Lonzo Ball has a little bit more upside. And then you get into that sort of next group of guys where the upside is more top 45, top 50 range. Uh, Demonis Sabonis being from this year is is in that grouping. Terry Rozier, if things happen to go better for him, uh, I would have said Hassan Whiteside, but he got way better than that. Ricky Rubio is kind of in that grouping. You can put, I think you can put Larry Nance in with those guys where you're like, okay, well I'm going to take these dudes probably in the closer to the 75 to 85 or 90 range, and in a great twist, they could make their way to that top. 45 top 50 territory, but I really believe they're going to end up more in the top 60 range. So then you're not blowing up all of their value by taking them in kind of that first bunch. But regardless of where you decide you want to ultimately target this dude, I think Larry Nance comes up with a big season next year. I think he's undervalued. And among these Cavaliers, he might be the only one that's actually undervalued. Andre Drummond, I think, will be accurately drafted. Kevin Love, maybe a tiny bit overdrafted. Or perhaps accurate. And then with Sexton, I really have no idea. Probably accurately drafted. Maybe a tiny bit overdrafted. Kevin Porter and Darius Garland will almost definitely be overdrafted. Because, they, you know, again, they each showed flashes. And people love to be the first person in line. You get way more credit at the end of a year if you were like, called it on Kevin Porter having a breakout season as opposed to me saying, called it on Chris Paul getting back to being a first-rounder. It's like, where's there's no unknown. I didn't predict an unknown with Chris Paul. I just gave you guys a value play. With Kevin Porter, if someone was like, he's going to be a top 60 guy, and then he does it, then that person's like, boom, gave you a massive value and called the unknown. It's a double whammy for your ego. But I don't give a crap about ego. I just want us to find the best values. And I'd rather spend picks on other stuff until you get into that. We talked about it already. After pick 108, when it's a total free-for-all, 
I mean, if you think Kevin Porter's going to play 30 minutes a game next year, yeah, at 110, you can go ahead and take him. What difference does it make? You're probably going to drop that guy anyway. Take your your weird upside plays, your strange what-if-this-guy-takes-a-step-forward types. And roll along. Have a great weekend, everybody. This is Fantasy NBA Today. I am Dan Vespris. It's a hoop ball presentation. What the hell's going on at hoop ball right now? I don't remember. Oh, hey, they're breaking down the thunder. That's happening at hoop ball right now. They're breaking down the thunder. They got the Warriors top seven all time, in addition to the Sixers and the Pistons. That's over at YouTube, actually. And of course, shout out to Hoopball Gaming. Devin Ellington, doing work right now. Doing work. Keep kicking butt, man. Check that out. That's at Hoopball Gaming. Uh, yesterday, I put out a call for mailbag questions. We'll be answering those probably on Tuesday's show next week. Monday, we'll wrap up the last dance. And we'll break down the last chunk of the draft we need to rework in our final lesson of the year. That's, again, that's pick roughly 72 through pick 108. Again, rough. It's an approximation. But what do we do after we get into what I think maybe we can even call the Larry Nance tier? After talking about him that much today. The Larry Nance tier. The 60 to 72 range was the uh, the Ubre tier or the Shea tier. I don't, well, well, we'll come up with fun names for all that stuff. And they'll only make sense for one year because everybody gets drafted in a different spot. Stay safe. Hopefully we'll have more good news next week. Maybe, just maybe, we're inching back towards getting to watch something besides reruns because I'm tired of them. Dan Vespers, the name on Twitter. You can hit me up if you want to get involved with us here at Hoopball. We're taking people from all shapes and sizes. We're, I mean, you've seen it. We still got podcasts coming out. We're still writing articles. If you want to get involved, this is a great time. This is a great time. We have time and energy to invest in training as well. So hit me up at Dan Vespers, D A N B E S B R I S. And that is the last promo. We'll talk to you on Monday. This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.